Hi, everybody. Welcome to Unrestricted, the podcast that interviews noted public figures that have now returned to a more private life. My name is Steve Savitsky, president of B'nai Tzion Foundation, former president and chairman of many Jewish organizations. The people you're about to meet have great wisdom and experience. They were all leaders in the Jewish world and have much to share, unrestricted, with our listening audience. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Unrestricted. This is Steve Savitsky, and today I have the great honor of being here with Rabbi Pinchas Goldschmidt, who is the exiled rabbi of uh, the Soviet Union of uh, Moscow, and uh, we're here in Yerushalayim, and I have a great opportunity to see you in person. Thank you. It's a great honor. I've heard so much about you over the years. Thank you, Steve, for inviting me to this podcast. The idea behind the podcast was really to talk to people who maybe were in a certain position, now they're in a different position, and perhaps they could be what I called unrestricted in the sense that uh, we'd like to have frank, honest conversations about what's going on. So firstly, I mean, I've read about your background. So how did you get to Russia? You're, you were born in Switzerland, is that right? And it uh, sounds like you had a circuitous route to get there. Yes, I was born in Switzerland, in Zurich. My father's side with the fourth generation in Switzerland was the, the Rav in the community over there, Rabbi Levenstein, who was one of the most uh, prominent rabbis in uh, Western Europe. And his son, my great uncle, was uh, a Knesset member of the first Knesset uh, of Agudas Israel. He signed on the Declaration of Independence. Oh, really? Wow. And from my mother's side, uh, there were refugees who came in uh, 1938, a few weeks before the Anschluss came from Vienna and stayed in Switzerland, and my parents were already born in Zurich. So that's it. I was born in Switzerland. Okay, and then you went to school in Israel? I went to school in Switzerland, then I continued here in Israel. I learned in yeshivas in Israel. And at the age of 17, I went to the United States. I learned for uh, one year in the Tel Yeshiva in oh, Chicago. Sure. Huh. And then I came back to Israel and continued to learn in the Mary Yeshiva, and then uh, went to Baltimore and uh, learned in Israel, and also got my master's in Johns Hopkins University. Wow. And I got married to an American girl from Muncie down. Ah, okay. And uh, in the middle of our Shabbos, we moved from back from the United States to Israel. And then how did the Russia connection happen? So in Israel, where the first years you would live, live in Yerushalayim, I got my smicha, and then I opened up a kolel in Natsuatilit, in the north of Israel. Right. Today, the city changed its, its name. It uh, did the Shinoi Hashem. The name of the city is Nof Hagalil, next to Migdala Emek. And in the year, in 1988, I'm getting a phone call from a classmate of mine from Switzerland, who I haven't spoken to for years and years. He calls me and tells me that they're looking for a rabbi in Moscow. It was in Soviet times. So I said, uh, his name was Mechi Kuflik. Mechi, where are you calling from? He says, I'm calling from Bnei Brak. He says, Bnei Brak, we have at least 10,000 candidates for such a job. Where are you calling me in Natsuatilit for? He says, if you're Meshuggah enough to go to be a rabbi in Natsuatilit, you might be Meshuggah enough to I go got to you. Moscow. Okay. So, okay. so it was an arrangement which was organized also by uh, by, by a very interesting coalition, which I, I don't think would happen today to have such a coalition. On uh, one side, there was um, there was Israel Singer, who oh, was sure. the Secretary General yeah. of the World, World Jewish, Jewish Congress. Congress right? There was Izzy Brunner, who represented basically a whole 
a whole gallery of diamond dealers from Antwerp who used to travel to the Soviet Union on a monthly basis to buy stones. And while staying there, they brought in support for the refusing to the from circles of underground uh, right. communities, and they supported them with money and with shiurim. So they also have had a lot to say. And then you had also the the, the chief rabbi of Israel, of Avram Shapira, as well as um, then at a certain time, Rav Moshe Soloveitchik from Zurich came into the picture and, and supported me wholeheartedly. So uh, with all this, uh, this basically this coalition brought me to uh, to Moscow in 1989. I arrived in September 1989. So your wife must have been very excited about going. I told Mechi I would ask my wife, and uh, we agreed to go for a year. We didn't think back then that the Soviet Union is going to fall apart. Right. We thought it's going to be like in the times of Khrushchev, that there's a window opening for a few months or something. So um, we ended up being there 33 years. Right. Amazing. And you raised your family there. Yeah. So it obviously changed a lot during those 33 years from the beginning until you actually left. So how? what were the changes as depending on political what was going on, right? The main change was that the Soviet Union fell apart. Right. Right after the failed putsch in 91, the new Russian state was born. And uh, Yeltsin became the president right. after Gorbachev. I would divide the, the Tkufa, the era of uh, you know, of the post-Soviet, the post-Soviet era. So we have uh, the end of Glasnost Perestroika, which is arriving in 88, 89. That's when the Jewish community starts to being active again. 91 is the push in the, and the founding of the modern Russian state, the Yeltsin era, which continues, I would say, in 1996. Till 1996, so we basically were like many foreign uh, imported rabbis who vo who came into the whole Soviet Union. Right. Because the Soviet Union, we're talking about three million Jews, there were four rabbis there. Those rabbis were all um, formed in Budapest, in the rabbinical seminary, which really? is not really orthodox. Oh, wow. This was an arrangement organized by Arthur Schneier. Oh, sure. In the famous Arthur Schneider. Absolutely, of course. So he was. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we don't uh, want to. <laughs> okay. uh, the Soviets loved him. Why did the Soviets love him? Because the synagogue, Pakistan, uh, synagogue, was right opposite the Russian Soviet mission, mission right. to the UN. Today it's the Russian mission, right? It's the Soviet Union. And uh, while everybody was uh, was was uh, basically uh, demonstrating, right, protesting, uh, let right. my people right. go. So Schneier said, instead of protesting, I'm going to try to make friends. So he became the court Jew for many years. He was allowed in. He was able to do few things which others were not able to do. He was able to to print uh, Sidurim in Moscow, which was called Sidur HaShalom, and also bringing th th tons of matzahs from the West. Right. He achieved a few things. And one of his, his achievements was that uh, he tried to get uh, there were four uh, p people acting as rabbis in the in the, in the there were just very very few shuls left in in Moscow, in Kiev, and four of them were young people who were not really trained and very very little knowledge of Judaism, and uh, he wanted to bring them to Yeshiva University too, but uh, he didn't get okay, so he brought them to Budapest, and so this is what existed there. At the time of the Soviet, there's four rabbis trained in Budapest, and that's the reason they wanted me to bring as an Orthodox rabbi and also deal with halachic issues. And there were many, uh, many halachic issues. Three million people, which did not deal for over 50 years with no 
uh, no matters of personal status, no gitin, no giyurim, no, uh, and uh, who, who knows what the kedushim were. So with all this, and and the main halachic issue which came when I arrived was the halachic issue of determining who is Jewish, who is not Jewish. Right, with right. The big aliyah. Suddenly, everyone wanted to. Uh, it's like today. Everyone wanted to become Jewish, and everyone said, "Oh, I'm Jewish." So a person comes says to the Israeli consulate in Damascus, "I'm Jewish." Person wants to emigrate to the United States. I'm Jewish. On what basis? Right. What basis? It was a very mute halachic issue, which was not discussed for, for generations. The, the, this halachic issues were discussed, but 400 years ago, but 100 years after the Inquisition, after the expulsion of Jews right. from Spain, right. when the children of those who uh, converted under duress. Of course. But their children, grandchildren came back and joined the uh, Jewish communities in Amsterdam, right. in England, right. in other places. And, and uh, they said they were Jewish. So we see also the Rivash and others, uh, the Rishon Achonim, discussing those issues of those Jews right. coming back. Right, right. Uh, but the question is on what basis? But here you had something else. You had people who had, you would ask them, do you know what your Kippur is? I said, ah, I've never heard of your Kippur. Do you know what Aleph Beis is? Never heard of Aleph Beis. And said, but I'm Jewish. So how can you determine a person to be Jewish if the person never was part of a Jewish community right. doesn't know anything about Yiddishkeit. So we had we worked together with Ramesh uh, Feinstein was back then uh, set a precedent uh, on what basis we can and we worked together with the Israeli Ministry of the Interior to set up the requirements in order to wow. uh, with the Bezdin I established in uh, in in uh, in uh, still in the Soviet Union to establish the para parameters how can you establish Jewishness well that sounds like a, a daunting challenge I mean with all those people it's always interesting to know the numbers I mean I don't know what the numbers are because I've always every time I visited a Jewish community uh, let's say over the course of three or four days I'd meet with different Rabbanim and the numbers were always changed. So it was a number became three million. Someone else said it was a million. How about today? How many Jews are there actually in the, what do you call it? Do you call it the Soviet Union today? Or what do we call it? No, today there's no Soviet Union. So what do we call Putin it? Putin wants to recreate the Soviet okay. Union. That's his, uh, that's his main aim in life. And that's the problem we have today, war with Ukraine. Right. Because he wants to start to, uh, he wants to incorporate the Ukraine in, uh, into Russia. Okay, so how many people are there, Jews in Russia? Russia? Your main you know, okay, right, okay, okay. Um, so today, okay. Now the question is, how do you define how, a Jew? Okay. So okay. We, have, we have the halachic definition, okay. right? Whoever's uh, whoever at least has a Jewish mother, right? So according to the latest statistics, before the war started, I think the number was over hundred thousand in Russia. Okay, and um, I think the numbers went drastically down. Uh, we est uh, estimate that. 25 to 30% of the Jews left Russia since the beginning of the war. But you okay. also have the more liberal definition, which is the Israeli law of return, right. Right. which is also an important definition. And uh, the Israeli law of return says that whoever has one Jewish grandparent right. is eligible to do Aliyah. And today, when you look at the Aliyah, so in the law of return, you have two paragraphs. You have it's called Arba Aleph and Arba Bet, right. 4A and 4B. Uh, paragraph 4A says that whoever is a member of a family for Jew can go on Liyah. You're married right. to a Jew, right. your grandchild, the child of a Jew. Uh, Arba Bet, 4B, is that whoever is Jewish has uh, right. is ready to go. So, so uh, today, I think the latest numbers coming from Ukraine and from Russia is that 75% 
of those who do al- aliyah to Israel today are according to paragraph 4a and not 4b. Which right. means that only 25% can be can be defined as halakhic Jewish. And that's the reason why, by the way, the new government in Israel, uh, uh, one of its, um, uh, Man- its mandates right. is the uh, amendment of the law of right. return, which is like a constitutional law in Israel. And they want to restrict the 4A paragraph only to children and not to grandchildren. Uh-huh. Okay. Okay. Because uh, you you had uh, you had this um uh, you have people for example a person his grandfather was Jewish. He is coming to Israel and uh he's not even Jewish. He's he's Christian, he's Muslim, but he's uh, eligible. Now, uh, one of the big paradoxes of the law of return is that let's say a person is Jewish. This was a fa- famous case here of a, of brother Daniel. He was a Jew converted to Christianity and became a right. monk and he wanted to go on aliyah. The Supreme Court of Israel decided that once you change your religion, uh-huh. you you lost also your eligibility to become. I hear you. So what is a paradox? So a Jew who converts cannot go on aliyah, but let's say a Jew has a child, has children right. who are imams, right, and, and or are priests, or, right. they can go on aliyah, right. So but under the new uh, law. You'll still have the problem, but it won't be as dramatic yeah, because right, it'll right, be right. only one generation, not that's two right, generations. Right, right, right. So that's really where we are. We don't have to forget also the big change in the status of Israel. When the law of return was created in 1952, Israel was a third world country. Right. Who, who wanted to come to live in Israel? It was either uh, people who were really Zionistic or people for religious uh, reasons. You right. Know? Lechol uh, imperial to be mekai mitzvos. It was a dream of every Jew to to zachazana and in v'shuv chalitzion v'rachamim. So this was uh, today. Israel is a startup nation. Yeah, of course, it's a first world country. Yes, so I had a PR agent in Moscow, Jewish girl, not religious, and she's in her, in her thirties. And uh, she told me since the war started, she tells me she got seventeen marriage proposals from non-Jews. Uh-huh, because well, they, they want to come that's to Israel. Right, that's right. There was even, she was even stopped. She, she rides a motorcycle. She was stopped by a, by a cop in the street. The cop looks at her documents and said, okay, I'm not giving you uh, a, ticket. A, a ticket if you... Uh, if you marry me. That's right. Uh, maybe that a Kedushan, let's say. That's and right. I have to, you the rabbi, right. we, have to, we have to try to understand, let's say, what this Gemara and Kedushan would talk about. It's so, so, so interesting. It's amazing. So you're in, you're in Russia, Soviet Union, whatever it was. You're there for 30 Three years, which is a very, very long time, right? I mean, as as chief as chief rabbi, one generation. So, how first of all, how do you get appointed as chief rabbi? Is it official from the government, or there's a chief rabbi appointed by the government of Russia, appointed by the government, but. Uh... Baruch Hashem, I was not appointed by the government. I, I was appointed by the community. So the community picked yeah, you right, to be right, the right, right. To, to be the chief yeah. rabbi. So there's no question that I mean everybody knows about the whole Chabad and uh, I guess Rabbi Lazar. I mean, so your relation was not. I mean, is it what was it? I mean, people talk about it, so I don't know. I'm just asking you. Okay, Chabad was always present and was always very active in Russia and they did uh, marvelous work also in Soviet times and in uh, post-Soviet times. But what happened, in 1996 we created the United Community, which were the Shlichim from the West who came in as well, you know, with Chabad. 
and the newly rich Russian Jews. Later, they will, they will be called the oligarchs. Ol oligarchs yeah. and there were a lot of Jews in the government. The minister of finance was Alexander Lucius, was Jewish. Boris Nemtsov was the vice prime minister. He was later killed. In Putin's time, he was a leader of the opposition. And uh, Urin Son was, uh, was also vice prime minister. You had a lot of around Yeltsin, the first prime minister of Yeltsin, Yegor Gaidar, who did a 500-day conversion from communism to capitalism. Right. It wasn't very successful, but uh, there was no precedent in history of, of changing a communist system to a capitalist system. Um, they're all Jewish. They're all Jewish. <laughs> but the problem was that those Jews had nothing to do with the Jewish community. Uh, and uh, the money all came from the West. And uh, with every day, there was less and less money because it was, you know, Soviet Jewry, we solved the problem. Whoever wanted to leave was able to live to, right. to Israel. So we created the Russian Jewish Congress in 1996, uniting everybody, the oligarchs, Jews in government, the Jews in science, and the, and the communities, and the Rabbonim, all together. Right. Okay. And it worked till the year 2000 when Yeltsin resigns and Putin comes to power. When Putin comes to power, and change the rules. It becomes, uh, under Yeltsin, it was, a, it was democratic. It was democratic, but it was uh, chaotic. Chaotic, there was a lot of crime, a lot of uh, killings. And basically the whole social framework created in the Soviet system right. crashed. And people had to work for a living for the first time in, in their lives. And a lot of people just uh, became poor, lost their life savings with the falling ruble. So Putin came and promised prosperity, stability, and bring back uh, the power of the state. And uh, one of the first things he did was to take control of the free press. So at that moment, the um, free press, much of it was controlled by Jewish oligarchs. He, he wanted also to destroy the oligarchs as a class. He wanted to take all the power back to the right. country. So he wanted to make sure that there are no other power bases in the country. And uh, the first victim of this was, his name was Vladimir Gusinski, who owned the fourth channel, a channel which criticized the government. And, but he happened to also to be the president of this united Jewish community. So the government decided to get hold of the channel, put Gusinski into prison. But in order not to be accused of anti-Semitism, they created an alternative community. This all happened the same day. On the 13th of June, in the year 2000, Gusinski was put into prison, and a few hours later, a new chief rabbi uh -huh. was, was elected, Rabbi oh. Lazar, and recognized by the government. And since then, the community is uh, divided. Okay. And Rabbi Lazar's community was always very close to the Kremlin. And uh, they had annually, I think, two meetings with the president. They got much a, a lot of, as one of the uh, people working for the presidential administration, said, uh, his name was Antoni Gnatenko, he said, if the government is uh, working with you for you, it's like the sun shining on you. Mm -hmm. So uh, it was a two-way street. On one side, the government helped them, building schools, creating communities. On the other side, and also fighting grassroots anti-Semitism mm -hmm. in the street, or much less. On the other side, also, those leaders of this community supported whatever that the government did. 
But during this whole time, you were the rabbi of the... Of, of the other community, the community, of the other community, that's right. But of the shul also, right? Right, I mean... right. It was the main shul in Moscow. And we, uh, you know, we were scared at one time that the government is going to close us. Right. But Bok uh, Hashem, we kept our independence and we kept our distance from the government all, all those years. So your relationship then was really kind of strained in the way. I That's mean, right. Since then it was strained. Yeah. Which since the year 2000. To year, year 2000, yeah. So, so that's a long time. Yeah. Right. And um, so who supported you? So a lot of local uh, local Jews and local oligarchs supported us, yes. And uh, no, we were able to, just one of the major projects we did, we, we managed to, the shul was dilapidated and not renovated for over 100 years to re renovate the shul. It's a $12 million project. Really? And uh, there was an interesting uh, moment when the shul was built, still in the 19th century, and 19th century, there was a dome on top of the shul. And uh, as the story goes, the nephew of the Tsar, Sergei Alexandrovich, the, gov the general governor of Moscow, once was drunk, and he was going on a horse and buggy, down the street next to Achipova Street next to Moscow, and he saw the, uh, the shul and dome. He thought it was a church. Uh -huh. and he crossed himself. Uh -huh. So his driver told him, uh, You know, your, uh, your honor, it's not a church, it's a synagogue. He says, Yeah, it looks too much like a church. Take the dome off. And the dome was taken off. Really? And then it was a time when the Jews were expelled from Moscow. One, one of the rabbinim of Moscow at that time was of Chaim Berlin, oh. the son of the Nitziv. Right. Chaim Berlin wanted. Um, Actually, the Nitziv wanted Chaim Berlin to become the Rosh Hashiva Valozhin after him. And the big Machloikis, and the Bochim wanted Chaim Briska. So Chaim Briska won, and Chaim Berlin became the Rav of Moscow. Sure. Uh, I didn't know that. Uh, yeah. Instead, so he had to leave uh, because of the exp uh, uh, time they expelled the Jews from Moscow. Chaim Berlin became the Rav of Yerushalayim. So you're, during your time then, did the shul grow? I mean, like, in other words, you were there, let's say it's 2000 now, where there's a split occurs. You're there for many more years. So how many people belong to the shul? And... So uh, the shul, it's not, it wasn't a question of membership like in the West. Right. Every shul has members. Right. Basically, it was um, a service center. Service center, which means we gave services from moment of birth of Brismilis and Brisim, uh, kindergartens, schools. Um, also social services to the elderly and medical services right and uh, soup kitchens for and uh, basically the the elite the people who had money paid for those services for all those people who didn't pay and for example for uh, before Pesach you have thousands and thousands of people came to buy matzahs mm -hmm. still from Soviet times right right eating matzah has become maybe has been the most important um, part of the Jewish identity, of Jewish right. identity. freedom. Right, right. It's still in Soviet times. Jews remember the um, Pesach eating matzahs. So, so you're there all those years, and I know that you, we talked, when you started, you said in exile. So during the time that you were there, did you feel safe during the time that you were there, even though you were not officially part of the government per se, right? There were always safety concerns. In the 1990s, the safety concerns were from um, either crime or at once I was, uh, at one time I was mugged at gunpoint. Uh, even my coat was taken off. I had a nice coat, a nice leather coat. And it was also street anti-Semitism. But uh, as Putin comes to power, more and more government control, there's less uh, 
less and less uh, street crime, less and less uh, attacks, street attacks. Or, however, what is happening is something else. It's the the government's becoming more and more demanding, more and more um, interfering in Jewish affairs, and the Secret Service, the FSB, which right. is the successor organization of the KGB, is uh, mixing in in every aspect of Jewish life. So. In, two, in the year 2000, right after the split, uh, there was an attempt by the Kremlin to get rid of me by annulling my visa. And only thanks to international intervention, uh, I was able to stay. And this happened again in 2005. Really? Three times they tried to get rid of me and to get, to get me to leave the country. In 2005, I was actually, I came, I flew back from, from Israel to, to Moscow. And at the border, they told me that uh, I cannot um, come back in. I'm. Uh, uh, later, they, they wrote an official letter that I, I'm a security threat to okay. uh, to Russia. When my, my mother saw that, my mother told me, you know, you're you know, little Pinchas, you're the security threat for a big Russia. So it's funny. Was a lot of that uh, orchestrated by Chabad and Rabbi Lazar or, or, or not? Or was it the government? There were forces within the Jewish community who had something to do with it. However, with the, also with the international pressure, I came back after three months, 2005. And again, in the end of the, about five years, a, few, a little before Corona, there was another attempt to get rid of me. So every time I or my wife went through border controls, flying in or flying out of Moscow, we stopped at the border control for an hour, an hour and a half, and, and questioned. And right. So, uh, you know, Hashem, I, I had my good experiences in Moscow. It was... Uh, did you have those people who were protecting you, or who was? It? Yeah, we had uh, we had we had in the community many powerful balabatim okay. who were able to intervene, who were able to protect. Uh, it used to be in the in the beginning, it was from the outside. Uh, it was, but as Russia became more insular and more anti-Western, so less and less uh, Western government were able to influence the Russian government. So the influence had to come from within, not from within. Right. So what about the people who live there, the Jews who live in Russia? I mean, what is their life like? Let's say during that time from 2000 till let's, let's forget the beginning of Ukrainian war. We'll talk about that in a second. But well, did they have freedom to do what they want, to, to worship, go to shul, so, eat kosher? What? So what you had basically, you had the Jewish, with all this uh, going on uh, around you and beginning the first uh, years of chaos and then, uh, and then the system which became more authoritarian, by the minute, you had a Jewish Renaissance because comparing to what it was during the communist times, what it was during the Tsarist time, it was it was gold. It was a, really? it was a, the golden era, because a Putin, the big thing you can say about Putin, he was he was never an anti-Semite, and he had good relations with many Jews, also with the Israeli government and especially with Bibi, personal good relationship. Right. And number two, he was pro-religion, and this pact between the Russian Orthodox Church and and the state between Kirill and Putin basically created the framework of as the government became more anti-European. So the the ideology, they had to create an ideology. In communist times, right. uh, you had uh, an ideology of communism against uh, Western values of freedom right. and, and, and religion. Right. So in the modern Russia, you needed a new ideology as well. So the Russian Orthodox Church provided this ideology that we are for the family, and they called Europe, for example, uh, Europe in, in Russian is Europa. Right. So they called Europa, Gay Europa, 
gay mm. woman because mm. of the, for gay rights. Yeah, yeah. And um, so it was very pro-religion. And therefore, we we started schools, yeshivas, and everything. Really? So we have uh, just uh, the two our two-day schools of our community, uh, more than 700 children still today. And yeshivas, and kolalim, and everything also, kolal Torah mitzion. So with programs for thousands and thousands of Jews, and the main work was to, because the majority of Jews during communist times went into the closet. We're hiding their Jewishness it was right. to get them out of the closet. So this was the, uh, this was the job we were all doing in, in Baruch Hashem. A lot of thousands, thousands of Jews came much closer to Yiddishkeit. I want to tell you something that I, the first interview I gave to a newspaper was in 1989 when I arrived in Moscow. It was okay. the Jerusalem Post. Jerusalem Post, okay. And uh, they asked me a question back then. They asked, tell me, when Jews ask you to leave uh, leave the Soviet Union state, what are you telling them? So I told them, listen, I'm here for a few months. Nobody's asking me the question. They all decide on their own. But now with the Ukrainian war, everything uh, shows you right. 30, 30 well, you, you didn't have communities. You, a rabbi was, uh, was, uh, was a Marcion who came Right uh, to Earth, right? Yeah, uh, 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 it's not a person you ask your personal question to. But today, uh, at the time uh, when we start the uh, Russian-Ukrainian war, Rabbanim were asked the questions by thousands and thousands of community members to stay to leave whatever. So it shows you to what extent uh, the Russian-Jewish community changed. A community was created with schools, with yeshivas, right. with kashas. In Moscow, you have, uh, till the beginning of the war, you had, uh, I think, 12 kosher restaurants. Really? So now, what happened now? I mean, let's just kind of fast forward to Ukraine war, and and then you criticized the government uh, for going to war, I mean, openly. And then were you asked to leave? Did you have to sneak out? What happened? I knew, we knew that, uh, hey, even if you called the war war, this was already criminal. I got you. Okay. Put you for 15 years away. If you called it a war. Yeah. So what are you supposed to call it? Like a... A special military operation. A special operation. Yeah, oh, yeah. Okay. I got you. Okay. okay. Special military. Right. So there was no war. It was only special military operation. So, and you can imagine if you criticize the war. And I was the major religious figure in Russia which criticized the war because all the Muslim and the Christian leaders and the so the Chabad, Rabbi Lazar, and so on. Rabbi Lazar been... asked for peace, and the president of FAO, which is the umbrella organization of Chabad, uh, Rabbi Alexander Barada, uh, basically supported the war. He says, yeah, it's, uh, we have to go fight the, the Nazis, the anti-Nazis, uh, the neo-Nazis, whatever. So basically gave, gave his support. So Chabad today is supporting, or they're quiet? The, mostly quiet because you, know, you have to understand uh, the chief rabbi of Ukraine of Chabad his name is uh, Rabbi Asman and uh, at the first two days of the war he went he went viral uh, on social media attacking Chabad in Moscow for not speaking out against the war Right. so Rabbi Lazar never supported the war he called for peace whatever However, I don't think he can do more. If he wants to stay in Moscow, he cannot. If he's going to criticize the war, he's going to have to leave Moscow like me. But uh, Barada openly supported the war. So is is Chabad openly? I mean, how, how big is Chabad now? Uh, they have, uh, I think, actual, the, the number is bigger, but the real community is the 50, 60 communities in, uh, in Russia. They have 
um, also in, in Moscow, they have uh, two dozen places to, to daven, Minyanim, the really? main center in Moscow. It's, it's, a, it's a huge operation. And so how many people are there now? You're saying maybe 50,000, 60,000? I don't know. I think there are uh, most probably the, I don't know the numbers today, after the beginning, uh, since the beginning of the war, 30% left Russia. Really? Okay. So it's, it has become lower, and, and, but, uh, and, and also many of the programs stopped. But uh, we're talking about uh, tens of thousands of people. Really? Russia. Okay. Yeah. So actually, so within Chabad, there's this uh, friction between Ukraine and Russia. I would say the, uh, more than that. There's this friction between, I would say, Western Chabad, okay. called World Chabad, and Russian Chabad. Okay. Why? Because uh, also it uh, it created a big problem for Chabad in, in in the United States, being identified to some extent, because uh, Chabad for many years was uh, was advertising Putin as a the great champion, right, friend, right, fan champion, and uh, now they had a problem. So, for example, uh, Chabad uh, California, headed by Rabbi Kunin, of course, uh, they they were working for years and years getting the library of the sixth Lubavitcher Rebbe, right. the Schneerson collection. And uh, even though the government gave it to the Chabad Jewish Museum in Moscow, Chabad, Crown Heights, is very unhappy with it. They mm-hmm. went to court. They, take to, they took to court the Russian government really? in the United States. And the Russian government, of course, didn't come uh, disputing that uh, a U.S. court has jurisdiction. And uh, this U.S. court to put uh, slapped on them uh, uh, for contempt of court a fifty thousand dollar daily fine, really? which today goes already is uh, over hundred eighty million dollars. <laughs> now, so you see what Chabad California did. I think speaking for all Chabad in in the United States, when uh, the war started, they came to Israel. Uh, as you know, between Israel and Russia, the negotiations over giving. The Russian compound here in Jerusalem, Yerushalayim, to right. the Russians. So they put in um, a claim in court to stop giving over the Russian compound to the Russians till the Russians take care of the Schneerson Library. So you see over here a very, very direct attempt of of right. Chabad, of the West, Chabad, the United States, to distance themselves I as much you. as possible really? from Chabad, Russia. Right. So when you decide you have to leave, I mean, do you you don't make a public announcement. Um, you don't make a speech, a farewell speech to your shul, do you? I made a farewell speech after I left. Oh, after you left. Oh, okay. So you don't make it while you're there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You make right, it after right, right, right. after the fact. Yeah. So how did it work? You just you and your wife, and did you have any more children left? In no, I was they were all, all sure. live in the states or either in the United States. I have a son who was a very successful rabbi in uh, Manhattan. The yes, shul. yes, I know all about him. Right? And uh, we have those children in Philadelphia and. Uh, Right. And Englewood, and uh, we have uh, three children here in Israel. Okay, so all your children were yeah, here, right. and your family, you still have family there, or not? No. 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 So then you decided to leave, yes. what, because what, you came on a, a conference, how did, how did you just, how did you get out, and did you did you take a lot of things with you? I, or? No, just because uh, we decided that, that we're going to have to help the Ukrainian refugees. Right. So we decided to, we're going to we could, to the only way to fly out of Moscow, yeah, there were no more flights between Europe and, and, and Russia. Right. So we had to fly through Istanbul. Now the flight itself was twice as long because all of south of Russia was closed. The um, the airspace was closed because of the war. So you had to fly over Kazakhstan right. to get to Istanbul. We stayed overnight and we, we just left with two suitcases. Really? 
and uh, we decided to start a foundation to help the refugees. We collected more than uh, $3 million, and uh, we went to visit the refugees in Budapest, in Warsaw, in Vienna, and everywhere, and started helping communities to really to help those refugees. It was a, it was a very emotional trip, and... Uh, which I took with my wife. So that's what you're doing. You're doing that now. I mean, the, also, what, yeah, we touch what, with the what is the conference of European rabbis? Is it right that you're yes. you're the, you're in charge of that, right? Or I'm charge, you know, I'm whatever. President. Yeah. Okay. Well. Okay. Yeah. So that's the one. The door conference of yeah. European rabbis. So, so, what does that mean? What is that position? Conference of European rabbis. I would say is um, the strongest European firm organization today. Okay. And basically, it's the strongest Orthodox. It's we don't have an OU in Europe. You know, I know that. Yeah, I know. yeah. We've tried. It never worked. Okay. We, don't, we don't even have an Agadis soil in Europe. Okay. <laughs> so what we have in Europe, basically, is, um, yeah, but, but the difference with the United States, in the United States, 80% of the Jewish communities are, have Orthodox synagogues, and the rabbi is an Orthodox rabbi, even though the majority of members in the Jewish communities are not uh, Shomi Shabbos and uh, not, uh, not religious Jews, but the synagogue they go to is an Orthodox synagogue. The rabbi they go to is an Orthodox rabbi, and all those rabbis are members of the Conference of European Rabbis. Okay, I got okay? you. Which is 80% of European rabbis. So we are the official organization I, yeah, yeah. representing... How many rabbis are there in this group? 700. 700 rabbis in right. the European... Right. Really? Well, I didn't realize it was that much. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's, that's really it's amazing. So when you now that you're here, you live in Israel now, obviously, right? right? Most of the time. I'm dividing my time between Israel and Europe. Between Israel and Europe. Yeah. So where do you stay when you're in Europe? Well, you know, sometimes uh, I'm also uh, the head of the base in Switzerland, and I'm, uh, we're having, uh, we're going to visit the refugees, and uh, we we're going to have our headquarters in Munich, in Germany. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. We used to have our headquarters in London, but those uh, Brits decided to go on Brexit and leave uh, Europe. I got you. So we had to so move. You, to, are you going to move to Munich at some point? No, I, I'm going to spend some time there uh-huh. every few weeks. But uh, our so main which, office over there. What you did was a very courageous thing, obviously, to 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 speak out publicly. Do you do you fear for your life at this point because of that? I don't know. We we have to do the right thing, and down to the shabbat that everything is going to be okay. But is anything ever happened after you? Did you ever get any calls in the middle of the night, or no. somebody come with a little a little raincoat and said, "Come meet me in the alleyway" or something like not that? Yet, no. no, not yet. So you're, you're so far you're doing okay. So far, so good. Well, listen, it's unbelievable, and uh, you know, listen, I really appreciate your spending some time with me because, you know, you're a world figure. Everybody knows who you are, and your and your story, all those years in in Russia. Speaking, and you came to the States so many times, I heard you speak so many times, so eloquently, and then when you decided, you know, to speak out and to leave, it was quite a statement that you that you made. So I really wish you the very best, because uh, obviously, Akash Baruch Hu should watch, watch out for you and your family. Thank you. Let me just add one little thing. Is You know, people ask me, well, why did you have to speak out? Why did you have to speak out? Ukrainians, Russians, uh, fighting each other, killing each other. What's your, what's your problem? So I said, you know, today you look at, in, the, in, in all the Jewish communities, we have still, uh, 80 years after the Holocaust, we're still upset at certain people, certain nations, they kept quiet, they didn't say anything. We're not only upset at those people who killed us, we're upset at those, right. all those who kept quiet and, uh, and didn't say a word. So if we're upset at the other nations that they kept quiet, they didn't say a word, 
And we're talking then that they were lived under Nazi rule and everything. Right. So don't we have the same kind of, uh, if we demand this from others, we should demand this from ourselves. Uh, no, no, I, I think you're right. I want to end it with, we do, we do something very quick at the end, which is basically, I'm going to ask you just a few questions. Tell me the first thing that comes to your mind, if you can. Okay. We'll try. Who's the best speaker you ever heard? Rabbi Sachs. Rabbi Sachs, Jonathan Sachs. No, right. I definitely, that's for sure. What about the greatest leader you ever met? Gorbachev. Really? Go, because he actually... Today, three million Jews are free because of him. Yep, I agree. And um, you visited many places in the world, obviously. What's the best place that you that you ever visited? Place you liked the most? Yerushalayim. Yerushalayim. The can't do better than Jewish that. People. All right. What about any place you'd like to go that you haven't been to yet? I was never in the Far East. Uh, okay, so that's that's a, that's the place. What about your Chag? Favorite uh, holiday? Favorite Chag? Favorite Chag is Pesach. Pesach. You know, I knew you'd say that somewhere. What about your favorite Sefer? What is it? Um, in terms of uh, halacha, the tshuvas, it's uh, the Igus Moshe, the Swedish, and in terms of, uh, I think uh, the, the, great, uh, the greatest commentary is uh, the commentaries of the Rishonim, the Rashi, the Ramban. So, whether it's on Shas or on, on, on Tanakh, it's, it's always uh, it's amazing to see what uh, those greatest. Uh, almost a thousand years ago, have accomplished and uh, they right. opened for us the understanding of Torah Shabbat and Torah Shabbat. Without them, where will, where will we be today? Okay, two more quick questions. One simple: your favorite food on Shabbos? Like good hot soup. Good hot soup. One last question: best advice you ever got? Live your own dreams. Don't live somebody else's dreams. Good idea. Okay, thank you, Rabbi Pinchas Goldschmidt. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Hatzlacha, to you, and uh, really continue your great fight for the thank Jewish you. people. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. My pleasure. Great. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to Unrestricted, hosted by Steve Savitsky. The show was produced and edited by Gilad Brownstein and is a production of B'nai Zion.